One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, welcome to the show. This is Writer's Routine, the podcast where we take a sneak peek inside the working day of some of the most successful authors on the planet. This week we're chatting to Ruth Hogan, whose debut, The Keeper of Lost Things, was published to massive acclaim uh, across the world. Uh, She tells us how that story has influenced her writing ever since. Also, we find out how she's an incorrigible magpie. That's her own words, don't worry about it. And you can also find out what she thought when I asked how studied, perhaps, writing styles can be. It's never as... um clinical as the way that you described it it's it's very random but I'm always looking at things and sometimes you you just get a title sometimes I'll just get a title in my head and think god that'll be my next book and and I need to start thinking about how that would work that's all on the way and there's loads more besides this week with Ruth Hogan on writer's routine yes Welcome back or welcome along if you've just found us. It's lovely to have you here trying to learn some of the secrets of of the scheduling of some of the best authors around. My name's Dan Simpson. This is Writer's Routine. Uh, I know it's been a few weeks since we've released an episode and I think it might be a few weeks again until we do the next one. But we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. I know you may be listening to this all around the world. I'm getting fantastic emails at the moment from Australia and South America and in Africa as well. So it's brilliant if that's where you're finding me. Uh, But right now, this is kind of specifically UK. It's perfect book weather at the moment, isn't it? Great reading weather here in Great Britain uh, because, you know, it's turning, isn't it? It's on the turn. It's kind of wet, kind of cold. It gets dark very early. So all you want to do is the cliche (laughs) of curling up with a book in front of the fire. It's kind of all I've been doing for the last few weeks. If you've managed to push on, though, with these dark mornings and early evenings, if you've managed to use that time to get down in front of your computer and start writing, full praise to you. I have been utterly useless at doing that. Uh, but I've cracked through quite a lot of amazing novels. Actually, I'll tell you all about them if you follow us over at Writer's Pod on Twitter. Uh, I'll give some recommendations about the books I've been catching up on over the next few weeks. Now, this week, we're finding out all about the daily diary of Ruth Hogan. Her debut, The Keeper of Lost Things, a few years ago, uh, was published to massive success all around the world. Uh, And since then, she's written two more books. There is The Wisdom of Sally Red Shoes, also Queenie Malone's Paradise Hotel. We focus this chat really, though, on The Keeper of Lost Things, which is all about Anthony Pairdew, a short story writer who collects treasures. 
Now, we talk to Ruth about how pretty much the whole story was mapped out for her after she got this fantastic opening line. It's one of the best opening lines that I've ever read. It really grabs you, sucks you into Anthony's story. And we'll talk about how that came to Ruth uh, throughout the chat in the show. We also talk about why she decided to write a, a novel about endless possibilities, just as full of joyful discoveries in there as well. We learn all about the synopsis that she needs to hand into her publisher and how actually that really changes when she lets her characters take over. We also talk about a routine that I'm, I'm really interested in right now, and, and that's not so much a day in the life of a writer, but more a year in the life of a writer. You might have noticed over the last few episodes we've been focusing on this quite a lot. Like, when you've handed in your final draft, when do you get the idea for your next story? When do you start writing that? How do those 12 or more months pan out? So we talk about that with Ruth uh, in the interview. We'll also get a top writing tip from one of the most successful crime writers around. That's on the way after we get started with Ruth Hogan. And we begin, as always, with what she sees around her in the place where she sits down to write. Somewhere that I wish was slightly more tidy than it is. I, um, I'm very lucky in that I've got my own writing room now. It was supposed to be a shared space between me and my husband, um, in that his guitars are all in there. So it was supposed to be a writing room stroke music room. But my writing stuff just kind of spreads like a pool of spilt milk. And I'm gradually taking over more and more and more space. Um, but because of the way that I write... I surround myself with stuff that relates to the book that I'm writing. Um, so my desk is a nightmare because it's just covered in stuff. Um, and then I really struggle when I move on to the next book to take away the stuff that I had surrounding me for the previous book because it kind of feels disloyal. It feels like you're abandoning the things that inspired you. So I, I gradually have to move them to one side um, but yeah, it's a very, very full space, but I need to have that stuff around me. When you mentioned stuff, yeah, could you try and be a bit more specific for us? Or what, what, what stuff? Uh... Well, well, for example, when I was writing um, Queen of Malone's Paradise Hotel, which is my latest book, um, it's based in Brighton. So there's lots of Brighton stuff. There's a Brighton snow globe. And there's lots of seaside stuff. There's a mini deck chair. There's shells. Um, there's things that I associate with the characters. And then sometimes there's kind of fairly random objects that on the surface don't relate to the book, but are almost like a trigger for me. So they're things that will make me think about the book or they'll trigger feelings that relate to the book. Um, so, yeah, all sorts of weird stuff. And because one of the characters in Queenie Malone um, collects weird stuff, there's a glass eye in a box. Um there's an angel with a broken wing. Uh, yeah, so completely random stuff. It, lo it looks like the Museum of the Macabre sometimes. <laughs> Aside from random trinkets to kind of jog your memory and to get your creativity going, it, will I have any clue to the actual plot? Maybe if I were to walk in, you're mid-writing. Are there post-it notes strewn around? Is there a, a big whiteboard with ideas? Have you got a, a plotting calendar anywhere? <laughs> You will have heard of the expression, you're either a plotter or a pantster. I'm a pantster. So I usually know, well, I always know where I'm starting. 
and I know the end, but my books are very character-driven. So it's more important to me to surround myself with stuff that relates to the characters and the general feel of the book. I'm not a big post-it note person. I certainly never sit down and plan chapter by chapter. Usually when I get about halfway through, then I might make a few notes of, I need to get to this point by chapter whatever. But I, I've never done a chapter plan in my life. Well, uh, we'll, we'll get very much into how, how much of a pantsing you, you are. Just talk to me about the room a little bit more. Um, if it's a shared creative space with you and your husband, are there pictures on the walls? Are there other things just to get those juices kind of flowing for you both? Um, well, <clears throat> the guitars are now rammed into a tiny corner. <laughs> there is, um, there's a piano in there, uh, which I sometimes just, I can't play. I haven't been taught to play piano, but I can play by ear, so I might play a few things um there are also there's it's it's an edwardian house so it's got very high ceilings big fireplace lots of bookcases um there is um a mantelpiece that is covered in music boxes so i think i have about possibly 24 uh music boxes because one of the characters in my latest book collects them and plays them so i'll get up every now and again i'll get up and wind them all up and listen to them in turn because I don't want to leave any of them out, you see. I, I kind of, it started with Keeper, but I do, I, I kind of um, bestow on objects feelings, which is a weird thing to do, but I, I, I worry about one of them being left out. So if I wind one of them up and listen to it, I have to do all of them. Right, okay. I, I enjoy that. But there must be a bit of a cacophony of creepy sounds when these are all going on. Why is it people think music boxes are creepy? They just are. I do it in turn, so I don't have them all playing at once. Right. So I play one, and then I play the next one, then I play the next one. Uh, are you writing on, on on a laptop? This is very very tedious, I imagine for you. But I, you know, listeners like to hear this. Are you writing on a laptop? Are you on Word? Are you on Pages? Scrivener? What's the deal? Um, I write on a laptop, and this this book that I'm the book that I'm currently working on, which is my fourth book is the only one that I haven't written completely in longhand first. So normally I would write in longhand with a fountain pen. Then I would put that onto the laptop and print it off. Chap this is chapter by chapter. Um, and then I would edit and then I would correct on the laptop and then it's done. So by the time I get to the end of that run through, I very rarely change very much at all. How much of an edit do you need to do in terms of keeping things consistent throughout your novel? So although you are editing every chapter many times before it's even printed, you know, when it's going from fountain pen mm. to paper, to, mm. uh, when you get to the, the final chapter and then you've got your whole draft, do you have to do it then an edit to just make things consistent because things often change throughout your story? I, I'll do a read through when I finish completely. And that there might be the odd one or two things. But because I'm such a perfectionist, um, I, I, I will literally obsess over things. So, but there'll be, a, very occasionally, there'll be an odd thing. Like um, when the proof came out of one of the books, somebody noticed that I'd put CD, a CD in before CDs were invented. And it was only like a couple of years, but things like that are really important. And sometimes because I'm too close to it, I won't necessarily pick that up. But someone further down the process will. 
But generally speaking, um, I, I tend to check those things as I go along. See, I always feel guilty when I'm talking about this because I've heard so many authors talk about how they do it and they're so organised and they, they get up and they have their breakfast and then they sit down and they do it. Mine's much more um, kind of chaotic than that. So I have three rescue dogs. So when I get up, I have to walk them because otherwise they won't give me any peace and I won't be able to write. So I'll, I'll take them out and then I'll come back and... Um, maybe have a cup of tea or have some breakfast or something and then I sit down at the laptop um, and then I do that thing that a lot of writers do which is basically fiddle about so pretend you're checking your emails and then get distracted by something on Google and and even when I was writing longhand um, I, ha I have a massive really old um, Oxford dictionary and my spelling is terrible. So if I was writing longhand, I would check my spelling as I went along. But then I'd get distracted by interesting looking words that were either side or on the same page. <laughs> and, um, and I actually have a little notebook where I write down words that I'm not necessarily going to use now, but are useful or I like the sound of. Um, so I'll write those down. So I'll do that kind of settling myself in and then I start writing. What time and do you reckon you tend to start writing every day oh god I wish I wish I could give you a specific time because every day is different um but I would say usually by by 10 o'clock I'm at the laptop and I'm starting and once I get started my problem is stopping because I don't want to leave it um which is another good reason why I've got dogs because they actually say right enough's enough now <laughs> we need to go out we need a break we need we need you to stop um but my writing day doesn't begin and end at the laptop or with my my notebook if I'm writing longhand because as soon as I'm out with the dogs, my brain is working on my book. So it's it's one of those jobs where you never actually stop working, or I certainly don't, because I'm always thinking about my characters and what they're doing and what they're going to do next. Um, and this is why I have notebooks all over the house, because I got fed up of waking up in the middle of the night, having an idea, and then having to get up and go and write it down. Because you can never leave it till the morning, because you might have lost it. Um, so I learned to have a notebook by my bed and a pen, so that if I wake up, I can just write it down quickly, and it's done. So in a sense... I never stop working because I'm always thinking, when I'm actually working on a book, I'm always thinking about it. I'd like to come back to, to the back end of the writing day, even though you are still working. Just very quickly, I often have ideas in the middle of the night, write them down on a notepad because mm. I've heard th that bit of advice before. Uh, and I look at them the next day. Not only is it moderately illegible, it's just garbage. They're the worst ideas ever. There's some people have this theory that the ideas that you have in the middle of the night are the good ones because it's kind of when your brain's thinking about it. Mm. I don't always believe that. When you wake up in the morning and read read the things that you've written down at night, how are they? How do they tend to find for you? For, for me, they're, they're good. Brilliant. They're perfect. And the other thing that I've learned to do, one of the things that you asked me about what's on my writing desk, there's a big round stone with one word written on it, which is trust. And this is something that I have learned. Um, when I'm struggling with a knot in my plot, a plot knot, <laughs> rather than a what knot, um, if you keep worrying away at it and keep thinking about it and keep trying to work out how to fix it, 
I usually end up winding myself tighter and tighter. Whereas if I consciously say, right, I'm going to leave it alone, it will sort itself out. I have to trust myself for my subconscious brain to sort it out. Um, and nine times out of ten, if I go to bed and stop thinking about it in the morning when I wake up, I've got the answer. Let's get back to the day. You've stopped writing in th- in practice yes. because you've had to take the dogs out. Yeah. Say you started at 10. I, I know you're finding it quite hard to time these things. But what time do you imagine that you do write continuously until before you do need to walk the dogs? I would say writing continuously. Um, again, I wouldn't measure it in hours because it depends whereabouts I am in a book. I would measure it in chapters. So some days, if I've only got the tail end of a chapter to write... That will take me all day because of my editing process. And depending on, for example, I've, I've written something this week and it took me virtually all day to write a single page. But the reason it took me all day was it was a crucial conversation in the plot and it had to be right. And I know lots of writers are able to just kind of dash it down, move on and say to themselves, I'll come back to that. You know, I'll come back and I'll tweak it or I'll perfect it. But for me, I have to do it there and then. It, it has to be perfect before I move on. And particularly with something like that, because it because it's crucial to the plot, I have to be confident that that's worked in order to move on and do the next bit. And then other days, I can write pages and pages and pages. I'm not giving you a very good answer to that question because I'm not giving you hours. There but... is no very good answer to the question. <laughs> it's fine. It's just It's just an exploration, to use a rather annoying term. When you are writing... Mm. And you are continuously writing, writing, writing. Do, do you find that you've got a, a perfect amount that you can write for? You know, you can get through a thousand words and they're furious, you're full of energy and then you do start to trail away. Do you find that ever? Yes, I think as soon as you start to struggle with the flow, then you should stop. Because if you're just forcing yourself to put words on the page, then you're probably going to change them all anyway. So I think as soon as that impetus starts to fail, you should stop anyway, because the quality isn't going to be there. And how much do you leave it alone on paper for the rest of the day? I know you said that things are always going on in your brain, but when you've (laughs) gone away and walked the dogs, are you coming back? Are you working again late into the night? Yes, because what I do is I, I print it off and then I'll go away and do something and then I'll come back and read it again. And then I'll go away and eat dinner or something and then I'll come back and read it again. So it's it's it it. It pulls me back like a magnet. I can't leave it alone. But then as soon as I think, yeah, that's just about right, I'm happy, then I will walk away from it. Because you've not got any, as we said earlier, no calendar plans, you don't know what you're going to write when, Mm. how does that work in terms of working to a deadline? It's (laughs) nerve-wracking. It's absolutely nerve-wracking because um, you're never quite sure. And I'm... I I set myself very high standards. So if I've got a deadline, I want to meet it and I'll be beating myself up if I don't. Um, But I think the longer that I've done this as as a full-time writer, the more slack I cut myself because I just think it's got to be right. And also, I've worked out that because I edit as I go along, I can actually work right up until pretty much the deadline because I know that it's going to be fine and I'm not going to have to go back and do loads of redrafting. So, um, 
Yeah, it's almost like running to the train station with two minutes to spare. <laughs> and you just have to hope that you leg it over the bridge and get on the train. Talk to me about the hope then. How are you, if you've got this um, unplanned way of writing, you're not too sure about the intricacies of the plot as you go. Mm. How are you with forcing out the words if needs must? Um it's interesting because I've never really been in that position apart from with short stories because occasionally you get asked to write short stories for magazines or for various things. And I find that process of writing very different. I'm much better at sitting down and just saying, right, I'm going to finish this today and do it. But if I know I'm writing a novel, um, because a better way of explaining it perhaps is I nearly always know about my characters I know who my characters are going to be but then once I start writing they misbehave so the ones that I think are going to do certain things then say actually no we're not doing that we're going to do this and that's fine because usually by that point it's the right thing and and again it's that trust thing of, of trusting them to take you in a direction that you weren't necessarily planning at what point do you start to think that maybe they're taking you in a direction that isn't good for your story and that's also going to make it a lot harder for you to get it done on time? Right. Well, uh, there's there's two separate things there. there. There's the making it harder for me to get it in on time, which I'm not so worried about because if, if it's right, it's right. Um, touch wood. Like I'm actually touching wood as we say this. They've never taken me in a direction that I think, no, that's not going to work. It's usually the other way around. I'm trying to push them in a direction that that is not the best way. And then they seem to take on a life of their own. So, no, actually, we wouldn't do that. We'd be doing this. You're always being asked to write synopsis for books. Um, and you write a synopsis because you think roughly that's how the plot's going to be. But then when you start writing and you actually allow those characters to develop then there is a sense to the way that they go. So you're right, in, in some, on some level, you know that that's where they should be going. Um, and it's just letting them do that. It's, it's giving them, it's, it's trusting that direction rather than the one that you thought was going to be right. So as they develop, I think in your subconscious, you have an instinct that that's the right way for them to go. Are you aware of it as you're writing, uh, as you are putting words down onto the page are you aware how different this is turning out yeah usually by the amount of times that I'm swearing and throwing <laughs> pencils across the room because it's really inconvenient sometimes um it's it's not usually at the writing stage to be honest with you it's usually when I'm off thinking about it and I'm thinking about the next chapter so if I finish one chapter, then I'll be thinking, right, how am I going to start the next one? Who's going to be in it? What are they going to say? And then when they start saying, for, I'll give you a concrete example. In the book that I'm currently writing, two characters were supposed to fall in love. And that was, in many ways, it was the linchpin of the plot. But then as soon as I started writing about them and developing these two characters, I realised that that was completely the wrong thing to do now it didn't have a major impact in the plot it just made me kind of swizzle it around a bit but I am so much happier with it now because it's flowing well whereas with those two if, if I'd left it with the original two having a relationship it didn't make sense we'll get to 
we'll do synopsis and kind of the ideas in a bit more detail in just a second. I, I want to follow up on something that you said much earlier on, that your most recent book is the, the only one that you've not written fully on, on paper first. Yes, yeah. Why the change? Uh, time, largely, the time factor. Um, I should have had a lot longer to currently write to write the book that I'm currently working on, but unfortunately, um, home circumstances have changed. My parents have both gone into residential care very quickly together, so I have to clear the house. I have to sell their house. So I, in a sense, I've had to change my writing method to accommodate life, because there is other stuff going on, and I still have a deadline to meet. So. And how have you found that's affected the way you're editing and the way you are telling stories? Um, initially, I was really worried about it because I'm quite superstitious as well. And I thought, oh, if I mess up my method, then that's going to, um, it's going to make it more difficult. It maybe won't work as well. But actually, uh, it's not that different. It just means that I'm not using pen and paper. I'm still going through the same editing process. Um, so I've I've accustomed myself to it. Just fi- finally on the day, is is there anything else that you find really helps you get your words down on paper? Uh, a little intricacy for just you, music playing in the background, a cup of coffee at precisely ten o five, something like that. Um, I don't. I, I have to work in silence. I really don't. I use music as a trigger. So for each book, I will have a soundtrack that I will have made beforehand. And I will listen to that when I'm thinking about the book. But if I'm writing, I have to sit in the same place. Um, yes, everything on the desk has to be in, in the right place. Um, but then that's true of me in a general sense. You know, things that I'm, I'm incredibly untidy, but there are certain things that have to be in certain places. Otherwise, it makes me physically uncomfortable. What needs to be in a certain place? Well, on the, on the, on the writing desk, then the in-tray, ha-ha, which is just <laughs> overflowing, has to be that side. The glass eye has to be on my right. Um, so everything has to be in the same position. And my chair faces the window. Um, with it's, it's a bay window but I don't look out of the window but I like that light I like the light coming in um, and as I say it has to be silent I don't like any noise when I'm writing Even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks Italian leather jackets and so much more and the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We'll get more with Ruth in just a sec. Before we do, I want to give you another little gentle nudge in the direction of our Patreon page over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. If you love what we're doing on the show, if you've had some tips that have really helped the way that you tell your stories, or maybe just the way that you sit down to work every day, uh, I'd love for you to say thanks by sending over a couple of dollars a month, not even that, uh, to Patreon. Uh, It really helps us carry on bringing you the shows as often as we can. I do get the irony that I'm saying that on the back of like a three-week gap. Let's move past that slight hiccup. I am trying as hard as I can to bring you the best authors as frequently as possible. If you want to hear that, uh, if you want more writing tips from some of the greatest, if you want to pay something back, maybe help me buy a coffee when I sit down to have a chat with these writers who are giving me their time. Uh, Please do pledge what you can, just, I mean, a dollar or so a month over, over on our Patreon you don't go home empty-handed from that as well. Uh, there are there's loads of merch on there for you. You've got badges, you've got bookmarks. It's all over uh, at Patreon. If you can, I'd love for you to to just spare whatever you've got. It doesn't have to be a lot by any means. Just a dollar or so will really help us carry on as often as as we can, as often to help you out. It's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back into it then with this week's guest on writers routine, Ruth Hogan, uh, the author of three novels so far. You've got The Wisdom of Sally Redshoes, the newer one, Queenie Malone's Paradise Hotel and her debut, which is really what we're focusing on in this show, The Keeper of Lost Things, all about Anthony Perdue, who's a short story writer who collects treasures. Now in this half we talk about how she gets to know her characters, how she's very much a visual thinker is Ruth. She knows and she imagines everything about them before she actually sits down to write and to tell their story. Also we find out how she doesn't want everyone to have a happy ending. She thinks that's false. She thinks that's not true storytelling and we find out why. And we get back into it talking about that writing year that I mentioned earlier on. I'm I'm just incredibly fascinated about this. I think I've learned quite a lot about a daily writing routine. And now I'm starting to move on to a yearly writing routine. And with Ruth, when she finishes one story, how does she immediately crack on to the next? It's not necessarily that when you get to the end of one book, you start writing the next. I, I actually have a folder at home which is called Book Ideas. So I I use various things to give me ideas for books. So I'm a, a huge uh, photograph book fan. I like, um, you know, Martin Parr and lots of social photographers. So I go to lots of exhibitions. I've got lots of photography books. So I'll use those. Um, I also love documentaries. I'm a documentary junkie. So the weirder the better. If it's a documentary, I'll watch it. And that very often triggers ideas. So... I'm constantly looking for ideas about things to to that might trigger books. So it's never a neat and tidy process with me. It's like my entire life. It's completely, a lot of it is very random. But sometimes I'll just see a person or a character or a photograph of a person and I'll think that that person will be a character in one of my books. So it's, it's never as... Um, clinical as the way that you described it it's it's very random but I'm always looking at things 
And sometimes you you just get a title. Sometimes I'll just get a title in my head and think, God, that'll be my next book. And, and I need to start thinking about how that would work. Sorry to try and make it slightly clinical, but when you think that you do need to write a new book, yeah. you know, when you feel it's ready and, and you, you dive into your book ideas folder mm. and you pick one out, say, how much time are you going to give yourself to think this through before you do start to type away? Um, I don't really give myself any time to think about it. I just start. Um, because by the time I sit down to write, while I've been mulling over the ideas of which book I'm going to write next, then the the beginning will always be there. But the thing that I do find absolutely crucial is the first line. Okay, talk me through the first line. Well, I tell you what, let's do this whole thing with The Keeper of Lost Things. Okay. Right, because uh, it got huge success, it's still up there in the Amazon charts, still chugging away. Um, talk me through it. Talk me through the very first idea that you had for that story, the little elevator pitch how did it present it present itself to you the first line came to me on on a train I was on a train journey and this line came to me out of nowhere um and along with that line came the idea that the person traveling on the train would be dead cremated and in a biscuit tin now, I know that sounds completely bonkers, but that's an indication to you of how my brain works. And I just got this idea for the first line and I knew that this man would be in a biscuit tin, it would be his ashes, and he would be travelling alone and without a ticket on the 1442 from London Bridge to Brighton. And once I'd got that line in my head, the rest of the book then started to come. Um, and... I, it was funny because the first time I met my, my UK editor, he said to me, I hope that's a real train time because if it isn't, somebody's going to contact <laughs> us and say, there isn't a train that goes up 14.42 from London Bridge to Brighton. But yeah, it was. I got that line and it was on a train journey and it was a hook and I didn't really have the rest of the story planned. Um, but then... What happened was, and this is two documentaries and um, a the inspiration of a former neighbour of mine. It was like the holy trinity of ideas. They came together and that's what created that book. So one of the documentaries was about weird stuff that ends up in lost property departments. The other one was about what happens to human cremation remains when they're left at the undertakers and nobody claims them. And then the other one was about um, a neighbour of mine who I used to live in this little cul-de-sac of cottages. And I didn't know him particularly well. I knew him by sight. And he was an elderly gentleman, very, very slender. And he had a bike with a massive um, basket on the front. And he was always going past my kitchen window with stuff in the basket. And one day he went past me. He'd got um, a butler's sink in the basket and I was terrified because I thought if it falls on him he's dead mm. because it was so heavy and so I rushed out and helped him wheel it back to his house and eventually when he died um, I realised the story came out that he was he was actually more or less a recluse and he'd been a professional man in his youth um, engaged to this this woman who was the love of his life and she died um, suddenly before they got married and 
his house when he died was full from from floor to ceiling of stuff and it was completely random some of it was antiques some of it was just old boxes newspaper and he'd filled every space in the house and every space he had outbuildings in the garden he'd filled all of it and the and the idea that I got was that he filled the space that she left with stuff mm. and it didn't matter what it was he just filled it and because the stuff never actually managed to fulfill that space he just kept going I suppose I'm quite visual so I will begin to see my characters I'll know what they look like I'll know what they wear I'll know what they like to eat I'll know what kind of music they like and so with the keeper of lost things I started with Anthony Perdue who who is the keeper of lost things uh, I started with his character and then I got to know because don't forget this was the first one that I wrote so I then got to know um the other characters in his life and then I got the idea of if he's this man who collects these objects that other people have lost then every object has a story um and I think I said to you earlier I I um give feelings to inanimate objects mm. um and that set me thinking about the fact that we place values on objects that are far greater than their intrinsic value. And that's because we attach emotions to them. So, for example, you know, if you inherit something or somebody gives you something, it's worth so much more than its intrinsic value because it carries that emotion with it. And so it was that idea that started me thinking about the keeper of lost things and how some things that appear to be totally worthless actually mean everything to somebody else and that biscuit tin of human cremation remains on the train was breaking somebody's heart because they'd lost it whereas other things um, that he found didn't you know the person didn't care if they'd lost them so that was where the idea for that came from and once I'd got Anthony's character in my head then I was able to start working out the other characters around him. So day one you've kind of got this idea mm. you know um, of the, the big things that this is going to talk about these characters what do you know about the story what do you know about rather what you're going to write on day one the very first time you do sit down to type away? God, that's a hard question. Yeah, no, it's, sorry. it's it's really <laughs> difficult to, to pick apart the process mm. of how you write because particularly for me, it's instinctive rather than a process. So I, I am a true pantster. I, I fly by the seat of my pants. But I think once I've got the first line, um, I start to work out what the reader needs to know, I think at the beginning I think I've got much more analytical with each book that I've written because when I started writing I it was it was almost um an, a self-indulgent thing because I would write whether I got published or not it, it's an obsession in many ways and I love to write it's my sanctuary it's the place I'm happiest if I'm writing I'm happy I create my own little world and I live there when I'm writing um but Obviously now I know much more about the process and I understand the fact. And I should have really thought about it before because if I'm reading a book, I need to get gripped fairly quickly. Um, I don't want to have to wade through mm. the first three pages hoping it's going to get better. And so I want to write something that pulls the reader in. 
but also intrigues them. I want them to be. I want there to be something in there that makes them think. Hang on, what's going on here? And obviously, with Keeper, it's you know, um, Charles Bramwell Brockley was travelling alone and without a ticket um, on the whatever it was train, fourteen forty two train, the Huntley and Palmer biscuit tin in which he was travelling, and and immediately there you've got a hang on. There's a guy in a biscuit tin. What's working out there? And that's. I suppose it's that biscuit tin thing that I look for now on my first page. I want the reader to think, hang on, this all sounded fine and now there's this thing going on and I'm not really sure what's happening. That must be so hard to do when you're not writing specific genre fiction. Like if you were writing a crime novel or a a detective fiction, you've immediately got your what, why, where, you've got the reason that the reader is going to hang on. But when you're not writing something that is so plot-driven... How hard do you find it to keep a reader carrying on when the point of them doing so is just to discover more about these characters? Mm. It's well, it's it's partly to discover more about the characters, but it's also to discover to discover more about the plot. And one of the things that I've been wrestling with over the past few days with my current work in progress is how much do you reveal when? And and that is something that I will plot out now um, because if you've got things going on in your plot that you want to intrigue the reader so you want to hook them in and and let them think that it's going to play out in a certain way but actually it isn't you then do need to work out at what point do I feed them this piece of information or that piece of information so sometimes it's a question of dropping that intriguing thing in to start with um, and and thinking, if I was a reader, what would I make of that? Uh, and, and that's actually quite hard when you're writing. I mean, I, I when I started writing, I had no clue what genre I was writing in and I still don't... I, I was, I was um, given the, the title of Queen of Uplit, which is lovely. I mean, I'm, I will take that every day it's it's lovely to write up uplifting literature but I also write about a lot of dark stuff um so I never worried about what genre I was writing because I knew that I wasn't really in a genre um but you're right it's slightly more difficult to know how to hook a reader in and and again you know I I just try and go by instinct I suppose at what point in your roadmap, we always say it's it's you, you know you know where you start. You're not too sure about where you're ending. At what point are you starting to figure out how this is all going to come together and close? Uh, do you know it's interesting you use the roadmap road roadmap um, simile because I have no sense of direction whatsoever. <laughs> I am absolutely rubbish at driving myself anywhere because. I've never had any sense of it. I can't even walk anywhere, really. So I guess my writing's quite similar to that. And as I said to you, I know the beginning and I know the end. And then I I kind of know a bit of plot and I work on the characters. But I'm I think by the time I'm about a third of the way in, I have worked out more or less how I'm going to get to the end point in the book. I will still have not plots, plot knots plot knots I will still have (laughs) I will still have plot knots but they usually revolve around this business of how much do you reveal when Uh, and particularly if you've got two interlinking um, stories and I nearly always write dual narratives 
and the book I'm working on at the moment again is a dual narrative so it's that juggling between past and present and making sure that they um, work well together but also that you're not revealing something in one timeline that you don't want to reveal in the other timeline if you see what I mean how thoroughly do you know the ending when you start so you say that you know the start you know the end yeah you know your characters quite a lot. Mm. I, I'm just curious about how thoroughly you know what that ending will be. If you've I got could to try write and... my last page now, and is and how have you discovered what that will be? Is that from sitting there and brainstorming? So you've got your character, um, you know whose story you need to tell. How are you thinking about right? That's how it's all going to finish. Um, I think the ending has to be as as sharp and as uh impactful as the beginning so um i kind of look for a full circle thing i don't want everyone to have a happy ending because i don't think that's realistic and i don't always think that's particularly satisfying um but i i need there to be some sense of resolution and it's interesting because again the book i'm i'm writing on i'm working on at the moment I kind of knew how it was going to pan out at the end. I knew what was going to happen, but I didn't necessarily know how I was going to express that. And then gradually, as I was working on the book, it was like, the, the per, for me, the perfect ending, the perfect visualization of that, because I can see it. I can actually see that scene in my head. Um, and I can't wait to write it, actually. So I could write my final chapter now. Um, but in terms of the detail, I don't always have all the detail at the beginning. So as the characters develop, the detail will come. But I, I, yeah, I could sit down and write my last chapter now. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine with Ruth Hogan. Thank you so much to Ruth for spending the time to come on the show. Uh, you can get her book, The Keeper of Lost Things, right now. There's two more, The Wisdom of Sally Red Shoes and Queenie Malone's Paradise Hotel. You can find out all about them over on our website, which is writersroutine.com. Now, next week, we're chatting to the non-fiction author, uh, James Woolman. Likes himself to be a Malcolm Gladwell, that he's in that mould of really precise, really informative and quite novelistic storytelling. Uh, a few years ago, James wrote the fantastic Stuffocation. You might have read it. It was all about uh, focusing on not, not so much as kind of getting rid of your stuff on minimalism, uh, but more how the reason our minds are so fogged up at the moment is, is we've got too much stuff. We need to get down to the bare bones and spend our time doing things. Well, after telling people that's how they need to spend their time, James's new book is all about what they should do with with their time, how they should spend it. It's called Time and How to Spend It. Uh, you can get more of that next week with James Warman. It's a good rambly one, actually. There are a lot of precise tips, and there's some chat about some of the great non-fiction authors that he's learnt tricks and tips from, who he's modelled his work on. That's next week on Writer's Routine. Or it should be next week on Writer's Routine. I've got kind of a busy few weeks coming up. I'm really trying to bring you these as frequently as I can, but, you know, other stuff gets in the way. Uh, if you want to help that kind of not be the case, uh, please do pledge what you can over at patreon.com forward slash writers rune. It helps me devote as much time as I can to this show so I don't have to accept, you know, boring other work to try and 
just live and pay the rent, <laughs> that kind of stuff. It's patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You can get yourself a badge and a bookmark over there. Uh, if you've got a chance as well, please do leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts if that's how you listen to the show. Uh, give us a follow on Writers Pod on Twitter. We are Writers Routine on Instagram. And I'll see you hopefully next week, pretty soon anyway, with James Warman on Writers Routine. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. Mm. 